You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 19... 19- 84 classic and our first film in the 2022 Stephen King of Palooza Children of the Corn Malachi <laughs> That was a pretty good Isaac impression. Thank you. And yeah, it, we're going to go with some down home Stephen King at that. Mm-hmm. I know that everyone loves it. And we talked about it before. We talk about it every so many episodes, quite honestly. So we don't need to get into some of the more bombastic Stephen King. We're going to choose something a little more bombastic after. But for now, it's going to be quiet, sweet home near Hemingford home, Nebraska, with Gatlin and Children of the Corn. I saw this when I was way too young. And you had mentioned when we were talking before the show that you may have seen this when you were way too young. When was the first time you watched this 1984 version of Children of the Corn. In So in 1984, for those of you who might be curious, I was still a baby, so I wouldn't have seen it quite then. But I think that it would be very safe to say by 89 or 90, I had definitely seen this. And I have the VHS here, and this one is the 1992 VHS release, which was the first time that this was released to home video. Uh, So this one, I didn't get in 1992. I got it a little bit later, and it was actually a a hand-me-down from somebody that I didn't know because I found it in a box uh, when I was a kid. But um, so in and around there, we had a regular copy that I could watch. But I also felt like this film was on TV constantly in the late 80s and early 90s. Maybe I'm mistaken about that. No, you're absolutely right. It was on TV a lot. And I think that most people who have watched it that aren't, you know, horror fans or of an age where they would have been subject to the hype of this movie when it first came out, they probably have watched it on television. And it's it's a movie where you had mentioned that it, could be mistaken for a made-for-TV movie because it was on TV so much. And some of its sequels as well. It would be part of those uh, around Halloween time horror marathons on many channels. It was a staple on Scream when that was a network and Dusk subsequently. So I, most people probably watched it on television. It was in heavy rotation and it's a good choice for it because it's not overly graphic. It doesn't have many things they would have to edit out as far as language or sex or drug content, none of those things. So it's sort of like a darling for throwing on TV, wouldn't it be? You're absolutely right. And I think that it has its shocking moments, but it's quiet enough in most parts, very dialogue heavy. Um that you could get away with showing this on TV and it's 90 minutes, it's very breezy. You know, people nowadays are accustomed to 
the Stephen King releases and now even Joe Hill releases that are epics. They're quite long, uh, two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour movies, whereas this is just a breezy 90 minutes. You're in and you're out. And if you put that on television, that's two hours of television blocked out, including commercials, and you wouldn't really have to cut too much. You might have to shave a little bit off of that uh, car accident, but um, not too much else than that. Which is fitting, and it has that Stephen King name. So it not only fits on TV time-wise, fits on TV content-wise, it is a draw because even now, and it's it's strange to me in a way to think back to the time when Stephen King's name was all you needed to sell a movie, and it still is. Mm -hmm. We're here, like, how many years later? And throwing Stephen King apostrophe S before any film title is instant gold and his books are to the like sort of instant gold too sure he's he's a multi-time national bestseller over and over again he's sold billions of copies of books every book he publishes has a readership not only in constant readers but there are different Stephen Kings for everyone. Some people like his dark horror slasher type stuff. Some people like his more lighthearted, almost mystery thriller type stuff. There's a Stephen King for everyone. Same with his films. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a Stephen King for everybody. This particular film was one of the first horror movies I remember ever having been recommended to me. My cousin Jason, who was also too young to watch this movie probably, had watched it at his home. I guess his parents had rented it when it first was available for rental, like a year after its release. They might have seen it in theater. My parents probably saw it in theater because they were theater going at that time. And him telling me that the the beginning of this film was the most brutal thing he's ever seen in his life and we had to watch it. So we stole on down to his basement, not unlike your basement on Alta Vista Drive, <laughs> and watched this film. And I sort of didn't remember much of the film except the beginning because it was quite shocking to me, the the beginning in the diner. Yes. And I think the only other scene that, that stuck with me was from Nightbreed, Clive Barker's Nightbreed, mm -hmm. another diner scene of people flipping out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the scene in this stuck with me so much. And I was quite young. I was probably 10 or 11 years old. Mm -hmm. So probably around the same age you were when you watched it. It seems to be a good rite of passage for young horror fans growing up in the mid to late 80s and the early 90s because like I said it's one of those films that are so readily available but also uh, it's got that level of violence in it that you would find quite shocking um, this is nothing totally new in terms of killer kids movies there's lots of fucking movies out there where the kids are the problem. And you combine this type of folk horror with the fact that it's also a killer kid movie. It really types in uh, or, or um, goes into the frustrations and anxieties that I didn't really realize that I had as a little kid, mostly centering around religion. I find that it is very religious people are very rage inducing to me as an adult. I, I find it creepy. I find religious people creepy and I don't care what your religion is. I just find it creepy. 
And I'm not saying that people who are religious are bad people, but I am saying that I look at religious people as somebody who have a fundamentally different understanding of the world that we live in than I do. I'm not saying who's right or wrong, but I am saying that for me, creepy. And so films like The Wicker Man and films like Children of the Corn, that uh, even films like The Mist, uh, and we talked about it when we handled The Mist, uh, films that have zealots in it, I, I almost can't even watch sometimes because I just, I need to be in the right headspace. And so I found myself, even last night, I watched Children of the Corn. I watched it on Shudder. I, I, I do have the VHS tape still here, but um, I, I had this thought where I was like, Ugh. like if I didn't have to watch it for the show, I wouldn't have wanted to watch it last night because I wasn't really in the headspace of watching zealots and i and i don't know how you feel about that though i feel much the same although i don't know if it was not having catholicism around me whatsoever when i was young i didn't meet a catholic to my knowledge until i was about 15 years old mm -hmm. maybe 13 to 15 years old i attended my first catholic service alongside friends uh, when I was about that age and I was told to go sit up uh, where the women used to have yep. to sit yep. and where visitors mm -hmm. have to sit or where immigrants would have mm -hmm. to sit in. I don't know if any Catholic churches are still like that. And I fucking hope to God they're mm -hmm. not to God. I hope to God. Look at me go. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was it was a very horrible experience. And the incense was, was suffocating to me the constant up and down the having to go up and put something in your mouth is like that was all very terrifying to me but other than that you know other than that one very strange experience which i guess is a very normal experience in a catholic church uh, i'd been around united church goers lutherans mm -hmm. and the bible was around in the house so but i i didn't know any zealots i'd never met a born again until i was maybe in my late 20s mm -hmm. probably so like i'd never had someone that was a uh, an evangelical person of an evangelical mind or any sort of bible thumping i never had that around me and my mom loved religious horror she loved that she loved the idea of these preachers on uh, radio stations in Nebraska screaming <laughs> about the lord and she would once in a while turn on those televangelists and we'd laugh about it because it was like an alien thing we didn't know anyone like that so it was a it was a joke that this existed in our world so i i have like a high there's a high entertainment value with this sort of thing to me and there always has been my mom's always been a big fan of religious horror so when i would watch a lot of religious horror she and i would watch it because she was such a fan and i love that angle in this very very much although there is something about the uh proselytize i can't even say that word there is something about the bible thumping isaac and malachi in this film that has not aged very well for me <laughs> so i think that would be the most grating thing but i do love i love religious horror with fanatics uh you could be considered a fanatic of a different sort um 
in terms of your understanding of the king of verse. You have a, a breadth of knowledge that I just don't possess. Now, I spent a little bit of time today going over some theories and some conversations about this short story and that was turned into a film and that spawned all of these sequels. But I, even as a kid, really treated it as this independent thing. I never knew until I was an adult that you were meant to, or at least King liked to imply or sometimes directly state that all of this was this interconnected world. So the world that the stand and Cujo and Salem's lot, all of these fire starter to talk about a recent King uh, remake, uh, all of these things, all of these children, all of these people who have psychic abilities and demons and vampires and interdimensional travelers, all of these things exist within this wide tapestry of characters. And people have like plotted out all of this intricate interconnectedness throughout all of the Stephen King lore. What, what my question is, and I don't know if we've ever touched on it before, maybe we have, but how much of this is fan theory? Humans love patterns. We love to make connections. And how much of this is King saying, yes, this is what I intended? It's irrefutable when you're reading a book and the same character appears in two separate stories. Yes. The stories themselves are not connected. The stories themselves are completely different. They might even happen in different towns. They might happen in different states, usually never different countries. I don't think he's written outside of the U.S. and a little in Canada. But it does mention, not only by name, a character, their age will match up, or circumstances like the prison they went to, or the time they got that super bad flu, or the time that that girl found that thing in the forest. You know, they, they will mention these things so yes stephen king does directly say things are connected and there are times when you don't even have to ask him if things are connected it can be as subtle as the make and model of a car that does not exist so we have an idea of what what multiverse of the king multiverse this is taking place mm -hmm. in or it can be as distinct as geography and it can be kind of muddy as geography. You would have to maybe ask Stephen King, is Gatlin near Hemingford home? Is Gatlin where people would theorize there's certain dark forces going on beyond he who walks behind the rose? Is it beside where Mother Abigail lives in the stand? Now I have to reread the short story because I took a quick spin through it. I didn't see specifically, but in the movie they mentioned that Gatlin is beside Hemingford and the only Hemingford Nebraska that we've heard of in Stephen King lore is where Abigail mother Abigail's from in the stand and it and it features quite heavily in the stand Hemingford home to the point that people are having visions about it and just saying the words Hemingford home have a very distinct meaning to me as a Stephen King or any reader of Stephen King or watcher of Stephen King's different iterations of the stand so yes he does definitely write within castle rock the fictional castle rock the true life bangor maine a lot of 
stories take place around there. And they mention things like the time that that pig got loose and killed a bunch of people or the time that dog got rabies and killed a bunch of people in different stories. Mm -hmm. So he does definitely do it. But then there are things that are fan theory that aren't 100% stated within the book. And if you asked him, you might get an answer that is like, oh, yeah, totally. That is Randall Flagg. <laughs> or you might get an answer that is like, well, I don't know. What do you think? Like, he could be, he can be coy from what I've seen in interviews about some things. But for the most part, it is 100% Stephen King, yes, writing within a multiverse that he has created as far back as the 70s. Because this particular story does have some strands that tie it to other stories and other stories that he was writing around the time of the stand that are sort of all kind of interconnected loosely. That's very fascinating to me. I love for him that he's had this ability as a writer that so few people get. And as a storyteller myself, not obviously that I'm at the level of a Stephen King, but as someone who likes to make stories, this idea that you have this, you have, there's a lot of goodwill towards your creations because you started so strong and it almost seems like this overnight international stardom and you're given so much room to play and so many eyeballs on what you're doing that you can just keep going and making things complicated and to have a readership who will make maps about your version of America where all of these things take place and drawing threads to what's connected and what's not and all of this fan theory you could if you were Stephen King and I don't think that he does this but if you were Stephen King you could spend the rest of your life reading interpretations of your own work if you preferred. Now, thankfully, Stephen King has decided to not do that and just to keep writing and creating and adding to the tapestry. But that level of success, and we've talked about the level of Stephen King's success, that I, I, you had always told me that there are more prolific writers in the sense of there are writers who have created more novels and more short stories than King, even though I find that hard to believe as a person who's quite ignorant to the literary world. Um, but because uh, to me, if you were to say, how many books do you think Stephen King has? I would say a thousand, right? I would just say a thousand because <laughs> I don't know. But it seems yeah. like a thousand. In the same way that you might say, how many Stephen King movies are there? And I would just say, a thousand. We could do Stephen King Palooza forever. But but to maybe not be as prolific a writer for him, but to be so fucking famous. Like, as famous as a writer could possibly be. Where it's not like you're known for one... Like, another writer that I would say is extremely famous... Uh, Anne Rice, that's a very famous writer. But how many of her books could a dummy like me name? That isn't just, you know, Interview with a Vampire. Um, and 
and maybe a couple of others. But like so many people know so many of his fucking books and short stories because so many of them have been adapted to film. I'll never stop being impressed by that is what I'm saying, I think. He is very impressive and was impressive even at the time with the amount of books that he already had out, the way he bust upon the scene all of a sudden, uh, having had books already prepared for publication when he went big. So he seemed to all of a sudden bust onto the scene with a ton of books and never stopped. And I'm glad, like you said, he's just continued to write and whether things connect or not, it doesn't really matter. It's always struck me as kind of sad that this map that people create of the Stephen King multiverse as other Easter eggs are being discovered. Because I just read moments ago that they mentioned Gatlin, an empty town named Gatlin in It. So you have to have read all of those things and really comb through them and reread them. And there are people who have reread all of Stephen King's recently to find more little tidbits to add to the multiverse when he passes away and there's no more Stephen King to be written that map will be done and that is depressing <laughs> it's a depressing thought um, although it would bring some finality to proving all of the tiny connections and easter eggs that are in all of his work and no more will appear and we can only go back and find ones that already exist which is kind of interesting he's so big that you can get shirts that say, uh, based on the novel by Stephen King, and that's all it needs to say. Yeah. Everyone knows what it is. He is Sutter Kane in the real world. He is that huge and big and famous. And it's unmistakable when you put a Stephen King novel in a book, whether it's a Stephen King movie like this one that has the book that I'm holding in my hands right now, that is on the dash of the car that contains the short story that this is written on, that this film is based on or you can throw a Stephen King novel in any movie and people will say it and be like ah oh, Stephen King I know where your influences lie and it tells you a lot about the movie the writer the actor the character whatever whoever's around that book just like it does in real life if somebody has a whole wall full of Stephen King it tells you something about that person does it not I think that one of the things that I always notice as a person i like to go thrifting i like to go to bookstores um um i like to peruse a uh, shit where you're gonna find people leaving behind stephen king books i used to have this um little habit of there was a, a a leave a book area in the bottom of my building and anytime i saw a stephen king book there i would grab it and i would take a picture of it and i would ask my friend who was a huge stephen king fan that worked at my store, um, if he had a, do you got this one? And if he said no, I would take it and I would give it to him to help grow his collection. But it seemed that every time I was picking up a book, it was one that I hadn't even fucking heard of. I was like, I don't even know what this is. This guy's got so many fucking books that haven't even been made into movies. But um, uh, fuck all that. I wanted to, point out one more thing before we really get into this film itself is my VHS copy of Children of the Corn. So like I said, I found this in a box uh, in my neighborhood growing up with a bunch of other tapes. Uh, most of those tapes have not survived the great flood of 2005 or 2006, whenever that was. 
but I'll tell you something interesting. Now, uh, listeners, you can't see this, but I'm going to take the slip cover off, and you're going you're gonna to look at this, and Lydia, you're going to see there's a nice pink label on it that looks like it might be for like a little child, and you got a little zebra here. There's a zebra, there's an elephant on it, and there's a lion, and the lion, is, they're all very happy. They're the lion's holding a soda, the elephant has got a little popcorn there, and uh, it's got the name, or the, the this video belongs to Debbie Parent. I don't know who Debbie Parent is, um, but that's what this tape says. And the funny thing about it is when I grabbed this, I, gra I basically, when I found this box, I grabbed every horror movie that I that was there, I just picked it up. And um, when I took the cover off of this finally, and I saw this tag on it, I thought to myself, oh, fuck. And that's a good tip for any of you thrifters out there hunting for VHS. Do yourself a favor and take the slip cover off. If you're going for CDs, open up the jewel case. It's good practice because a lot of times you might just be buying a box and you're not actually buying the thing that you want and there might be the wrong tape in here. And I thought that's what the case of this was, but that's not the case because when you pop it in, it is children of the corn. And if I were to take this label and peel it, it's the proper children of the corn marking on the bottom. So somebody just slapped, let you know, Debbie parent, this is my copy of children of the corn. And I was very curious about like, what circumstances would there be where there would be a VHS tape that you would need to put your name on in only maybe a public lending circumstance like the laundry room in the building beside mine in part of the complex that i live in has a book and movie take a book leave a book kind of area mm -hmm. but you're expected to like bring the stuff back or just read it in the laundry room from, from what i understand so that could be the case that something like that but it is so weirdly childish that is probably one of the creepiest thing i've seen today <laughs> It, it is very childish to the point in which I was like, is Debbie Parent like fucking six? Like, why, why would this person have such a little kid? It's a homemade label because Debbie Parent is not written on it. It's part of the typing. So that meant that somebody made this little cartoon dry. And I thought it was so funny that this VHS, so, so funny that I've never taken the sticker off where I'm sure lots of people will be like, Joe, just take that fucking sticker off of it. Maybe one day I will, but for now, I'm like, no, it's part of the history. You would think that it would be a marketing ploy. If it did have a line where you could just write your name on it, then it would be like, oh, this is supposed to be in one of the kids' abandoned bedrooms, but uh, no, it definitely belonged to somebody who insisted on marking their things. Like, I've seen from the library of, and I've, I've seen some pretty strangely childish stickers that go in like a book plate that you stick inside of a book to say that it's part of your library and it is weird especially in horror books it is doubly weird when there's like a happy giraffe and a lion that says this book belongs to so-and-so yeah uh it's uh it's it's always charmed me i love i love little uh interesting things about books and vhs tapes and everything it's like when people write their name on their Nintendo carts. I got a couple of Nintendo carts that like, this is Toby's copy of 
DuckTales, and I'll never take that off, Toby. Don't you worry, buddy. I'll save your legacy. Because at some point, you felt the need to write your fucking name on your NES cart as if it's going anywhere. And it's it's so it's such an alien practice to me. I wouldn't even understand why you would need to do it. Maybe people out there who are listening absolutely understand. Maybe they had, like, siblings that took everything. Or th- they had, like, you know, they were part of a daycare, like you said. Who knows? But fuck all that, Let's Fuck it all to hell. What is this movie even about anyways? This movie is about how the person who screams the loudest isn't always right. And while they may have some very good ideas, and maybe authority is the foot we're crushed under from time to time, they're not always right, and you don't need to blindly follow them. We have the convoy people who have just bought St. Bridget's Church downtown, and it's basically a children of the corn scenario going on downtown Ottawa with these friggin' people. And they are the ones that yell the loudest. They are the ones that are demanding retribution and cleansing. They want someone hung from a cross in a cornfield, basically. And it's, it's happening with balanced adults. So what do you expect from children? What do you expect? The premise of this film, ladies and gentlemen and non-binaries, is the fact that a very mysterious young boy who somehow looks like an old man named Isaac comes to the sleepy town of Gatlin and manages to coerce the children of the town to murder their parents and some of it is murder the way you'd suspect children might try to overwhelm adults with poison in their coffee. I'm drinking a coffee right now, but I made it myself, so I know it's okay. But the rest of it is just a lot of dogpiling and stabbing. And the adults are caught completely flat-footed. And then you have this extremely effective sequence that they intro with the credits of the film that is done with a child's drawings and illustrates like the fucking end credits of Wally what happened in this town and it shows more death, more sacrifice, religious gatherings, and the growing of corn, people toiling in fields, all while a drawing of Isaac oversees them all. You can tell because he's got his wide brim hat and his little black suit and quite creepy. Very, very creepy. And I think that these are my favorite. This is my favorite intro as far as an illustrative intro. And it sort of bridges the introductions of films in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s into like a more modern era, especially with the points that it's trying to drive home about the corruption of youth and the power of zealotry. And so it's a really modern ideas that are being uh, transmitted in a very like rudimentary way of filmmaking, but highly effective. And that all the children are smiling in all of these little hand-drawn pictures that are drawn by one of our favorite kids in this film, actually, little Sarah. She actually is a bit of a clairvoyant 
which is a Stephen King trope to end all tropes, to have a little clairvoyant or an older clairvoyant or some sort of person with second sight. And this is that girl. And uh, her her images in this are almost frameable. I, I could see a big Stephen King fan taking these kids drawings from the film Children of the Corn and putting them up as artwork because it's quite a tapestry, quite a story. And Isaac is, as you said, we've got to see him in his wide brim hat and his beady little eyes. He, uh, the, the actor is John Franklin, if I believe he had a congenital disorder where he did age quite rapidly. It's not as apparent now to see him. He looks his age really quite honestly, but when he was younger, he had graduated university when he was acting in this film. Really? Fun fact. Now, I feel kind of bad saying that he looks creepy, but uh, I didn't know. He does, though, and that is part of it. I had a friend whose father had a similar disorder, if not the same, and he looked about 80 years old when he was in maybe 25, 30 years old. And I I found it creepy as a, as a kid, you know, like it. And it, and it can be taken that way. At the time, I'm sure there are many, many people who have said far more disparaging things about the character of Isaac, quite honestly, because he does look like an old man in a kid's body. The best part about Isaac is how he plays off of his enforcer, a harsher more bloody interpretation of this strange religion where they worship this god he who walks behind the rose very evocative title i've always loved that since i was a kid he who walks behind rose like that is just great writing but the enforcer is malachi and Malachi is this brutal, bloodthirsty character, also a kid. And the, the way that these two characters and actors play off each other is, in my opinion, the whole show. This is the most memorable part of this entire narrative are these two characters. And I find myself constantly feeling like they're not in it enough even though they're in it plenty but i'm just absolutely enamored and in love with both of these characters and i always have been which is why i feel like now looking at children of the corn as a complete picture there's some fairly weak points within it as a film itself not necessarily as a concept but these two guys just do such a great job Really honestly, and as young actors, like cause under the age of 20, I guess they all were. M many of the kid actors did a fantastic job, especially little Sarah mm -hmm. and her brother, it, Job. Job. I guess. It, Was that a Job. Thing? Job. Yeah. Little Job. Job, a fantastic little actor. But yeah, these teens, basically, the older of the kids, Isaac and Malachi were the riveting ones entirely on every watching. On the first watching of this, absolutely terrifying. The next time I went to watch this was years later, and I had almost like a shade of embarrassment in that I was afraid of these kids mm -hmm. when I was a kid, very afraid of these kids. Mm -hmm. And 
as a teenager myself at the time, second time watching this, it was just like, wow, as if I found these kids scary and not cartoonish. And upon every subsequent watch, they become more and more cartoonish to mm -hmm. me. But I don't know what it was when I was young or first watching, or if it was that everyone watching it for the first time in the 80s found them absolutely terrifying. And there was nothing funny about the way that they were acting or the way that they acted those particular characters. But I, there is this amount of embarrassment for myself that I get watching this film. Am I alone in finding them a little bit cartoonish, for lack of a better word? I don't think so. I agree with you entirely. But if I could take you back, Litz, all the way back to when we were kids, I think a lot of that fear response comes from the fact that we were not interpreting them as our peer group. We were interpreting them as the chaos that is teenagers. When you're a little kid, and I have so many memories about like being in Carlton Place with my grandparents and seeing a group of kids skateboarding and being afraid that they were going to make fun of me because I was like a little kid or or and but wanting to like I want to come skateboard too like I want to like because they they are like adults but they're not safe like adults can be I know some adults are not safe but some adults uh, most adults are usually pretty safe teenagers are adults that are still imbued with this chaos the chaos of children in almost adult bodies. And when I was a little kid, I don't know about you, when I saw high schoolers, they looked just like adults to me. Yeah, yeah. Now, when I see a high schooler, they look like babies to me because I'm 38. And that is just the way it is. And, you know, part of it is... <laughs> Part of it, watching the film as an adult, and you see uh, Bert fighting with Malachi, and I was just like, "Dude, is he's a he? What is he like? Sixteen? Ring his fucking neck! Like you don't <laughs> you don't have to. Why why is this a problem? Like, um, Cassandra was uh, joking around with me and saying that because uh, I asked her, uh, would you leave? If I told you to leave in that scenario, because Bert tells, uh, what's her face, Linda Hamilton to get out of there and she literally just leaves. Well, he's surrounded by kids with knives and pitchforks and torches and shit. And I asked them, Cass, would you leave if, 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 I, if, if I told you to leave? And they said, yeah, yeah. You, you, there's no part of me that doesn't think that a giant man such as yourself couldn't destroy a group of 20 children. Uh, they were like, you grab one of them and use them as a flail. I was like, ah, you're probably right. Um, but but when you're a little kid, you're like the little kids of Gatlin. You're like Job and Sarah and young Joseph who know that what they're doing is wrong. You, they, Their parents have been murdered, the, but you're at the mercy of the big kids. And that's where the fear comes from, because we know as kids that when you're around big kids with no supervision, you are at their mercy. And the yelling, too. 
the yelling and screaming because that chaos of the teenager that you touch on and that is absolutely it the unpredictability the fact that they can wrangle the world as an adult but have the unpredictability and the impulse poor impulse control too of a, a younger person is terrifying and that their motives are murky especially as a child their motives aren't so murky as an adult because you understand what hormonal insanity is going on in there but you you try to not want to understand it because it is you want it to be murky again in a way but as as a kid their motives were always murky and the yelling people quote this movie often in two words outlander and malachi well. yelled by the opposite characters mm -hmm. people constantly quote this movie uh the most famous quote probably is outlander mm -hmm. because yelling malachi at somebody doesn't always have the same sort of weight as outlander and the outlander scene was very like as a pivotal scene in the film where he's yelling outlander we have your woman outlander if you want to say the full line but most people get by by just yelling outlander is it that famous of a movie that you can just yell outlander and everyone will know not anymore not anymore and i say this as a person who regularly shouts malachi uh, and i've been doing that since i was a little kid i was enamored with the sound of people's voices when i was a kid i i fancy myself a bit of an uh, uh, impersonator i love to mimic people's voices and do impressions and particularly matching people's cadence i love to do that and I find accents very interesting and the harshness of Isaac's voice that raspy oct like three octaves higher than anybody else coming as someone who's shouting Bible Belt nonsense, but they're also a little kid. That to me was why the, the screeching sound of Malachi really hit my ears just right. Outlander um, is a term that I even forget. I, 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 I don't really associate it with this film, but uh, every time I watch it, I'm like, oh yeah, they do scream Outlander quite a bit. And it's funny because it's it reflects the strange way that all of the children talk. This sort of weird, what would you call it? Like uh, pastoral uh old-fashioned way of speaking i don't know how you say it yeah it's like the only book they've ever read is the bible yes and it's a particular version of the bible where things haven't been as cleaned up as a king james version so it's obviously an older version of the, of the bible if not like a, a lutheran version mm -hmm. maybe i don't know where you are sticking to a lot of the these and thous and just the sentence structure itself mm -hmm. lends itself to 200 years previous. Mm -hmm. Very old, old time religion. Very first testament. For example, instead of saying, don't question me, Isaac will say, question me not. It's that way of speaking that hits your ear wrong and in a weird way causes you to pay closer attention because your brain is trying to autofill for lack of a better term, what the sentences are going to be, but they're not speaking the way that you understand in a casual conversation. And 
being present in Isaac Siddons are so um they're just such fucking mesmerizing scenes like I I honestly uh, I I wish the whole movie was just the children and these characters because you could do an entire story about two warring interpretations of religion that is the real crux of the fascination of this story to me it's not the our protagonists who every time they're on scene it just fucking stinks like death to me whether it's like linda hamilton singing an awful like the worst song i've ever heard in my entire life next to like banana phone and then getting mad in the car ride because her husband or fiance or whatever won't fuck her and i'm like i sang this terrible song for your birthday and and wore like a pink nightgown that and and you don't want to fuck me and now i'm mad because we have to go somewhere and then you have to and and then bert who's possibly one of the most unlikable characters i've ever seen in my entire life he is so dickish. He is a narcissist. He's combative. He is doesn't explain himself and and is incompetent on top of that in which you have rightfully so little children like ex, like calling him on his shit. No, little kids do that though. Little kids do call us on their shit. I remember hanging out with my friend Kelly's kids when they were very young. They're they're adults now, beautiful, wonderful adults at that. And but when they're kids, uh, one of them pointed out I had a crooked tooth, oh. and me being me and an adult in the room said, "Yeah, it's my only flaw." And she looked at me like, Puh, "That is not your only flaw." <laughs> and it was so point blank, so very much kids say the darndest thing. It was it was fucking brilliant. And all the adults bust out laughing because it was great. It was really great and very honest, much like kids. And that's what these kids can do. Also, to Bert's defense, I suppose, or yours, if Cassandra was going to abandon you while surrounded by a ring of 20 kids bearing knives and pitchforks, <laughs> is that those little buggers can get at you. It's like cats. If a bunch of rabid cats attacked you or rats or even a, you know, hornets, it's a hornet's nest. Mm -hmm. You kick a hornet's nest, you're running. You're not going to be like, oh, they're just a bunch of little, I'll just squish them all. No, it does not work like that because those little buggers, especially in groups, unpredictable, they're, they're, they're out of your line of sight too. You have to strain your neck to look down at them. You know, it's, it's very scary i like to me they're very scary so i can get how bert doesn't know how to you know he knows how to manipulate adults quite obviously he manipulates the hell out of his fiance all the time and probably manipulated his way through college to uh graduate as a medical doctor and at the hospital he works he probably manipulates the hell out of everyone around him to get forward in life because he is a narcissist as you as you stated uh probably clinically diagnosable as one but these little kids don't work in that way at all. Mm -hmm. Bert, first of all, I'm surprised he's not a writer. That's not a, a, a dig against Stephen King making lots of his characters a writer. It's more just, if, if he was a writer, I would get it more about just being like a guy with his head up his own ass and doesn't really know how to do anything. One of the most insane parts of this film happens 
that diner scene that just kicks you in the nuts and has all of this death happen at once. And then you have like adults crawling for their lives while kids dogpile them and just stab them rapidly and, you know, shoving a hand into a meat slicer. It's so, so wild. That's nothing compared to this boy that is going to get hit by a car, but not before his throat is sliced. This car crash is so fucking brutal. And I, and I don't say that as a person who is easily shocked by things, but they linger on not only the body getting struck, but also the body as it's getting run over and then flops behind the car after it's hit. I mean, there's no way he would have survived if, even if his throat wasn't completely slashed. This is one of those um, situations where we find ourselves with a kid trying to escape through the corn and young Sarah and Job, our first introductions to them, saying, we're going to help you. Now, there's some great kid logic here where they're like, don't worry, we'll wait. We'll tell you when the coast is clear. And then Job, at the top of his lungs, is like, there's no one around. Go! Like, holy fuck, the loudest kid in the universe. But it's of no use. Malachi catches up with him, cuts his throat. He is hit by a car. Bert then... He's a physician, Lids. I don't know if you knew this. Bert then decides to inspect the body, look around, find the suitcase, take the suitcase, leave the body covered on the road, because this is supposed to be in 1964. There are no cell phones. There are no places to get into contact with people. Meanwhile, Linda Hamilton's character um, is sitting in the car bored out of her mind she did kind of hit her head but she definitely looks like more annoyed by the whole situation like her like bert they got into a huge fight and then bert pulled over and said i gotta go take a leak and he's taking too long and the car's hot that's the vibe that she brings off in this fucking scene and then off they go and then when she says why did you take the briefcase oh there could be a clue in it i'm like what after you hit it by the car. And by the way, you've absolved yourself entirely of the fact that you could have killed this person because his throat was slashed. Even though you didn't see that happen, for all we know, that laceration happened when you, oh, I don't know, hit him with your car at 100 miles an hour. But he, but they're just like, well, we didn't kill him, obviously. He, and he even said he was dead when he was stumbling out onto the road before we even hit him, he was already dead. It's insane. That's not how being dead works, you dumbass. And then also, <laughs> he's like, I have the briefcase, don't worry. We're gonna call somebody and I have the briefcase, which probably has some clues in it. By the way, why don't you rifle through it and look for clues? Like we're detectives. What the fuck is going on with these characters? It, it fits better in my mind, you know? He was dead. A dead man walking is the line they could have used to to soothe you there because, yeah, the kid was bleeding out something fierce when he walked out of the corn to get hit by the car. Yeah, 
he was basically as good as dead mm-hmm. from the depth of the wound. I'm no physician. Bert is. I'll take his word on that and not much else. But yeah, so the kid was basically as good as dead. There was nothing they could have done for the kid, hitting him with the car or not. He probably would have fallen down had they passed by him with a slight breeze. So they put him in the trunk and they're going to bring him to a hospital for identification or for what? Because you don't just like leave a dead body, right? right, right, right I guess. Right, right. I, I probably would have left it. I probably wouldn't have put it in the trunk. I probably wouldn't have taken the suitcase. I would have left all of it in situ because the police need to do their job. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm going to the police. I'm not going to a hospital. I'm not going to find his parents. And I'm going to play Scooby-Doo. I probably wouldn't open the suitcase if I was dumb enough to take it. It's just, it does smack me as dumb. But they're trying to be good Samaritans. And I guess with no cell phones at the time... That's what you would do mm-hmm. because you're not sure of the location of things or if someone else might move it. If they're convinced that the killer is still in the field, which mind you, Vicky's character, Vicky, uh, Linda Hamilton's character, falls asleep in the car while waiting for Bert to come out of the corn with information on whoever had done this is probably watching us. And, and she falls asleep for like a second, I guess, and has a dream that Malachi comes up to the car with a knife. Mm-hmm. Which that doesn't fit for me at all. Everything that they've done, okay, they hit the kid, they put the kid in the trunk, they grab the suitcase, they go driving looking for a place called Hemingford because they had been told by a gas attendant that not only does he have no gas and he's no help, they should just keep driving. Don't go to Gatlin. They're a small town. They are set in their ways. They don't have phones. They will not help you. They don't take kindly to outsiders. He's like unloaded on them all this information about don't go to Gatlin. Don't go to Gatlin. Don't go to Gatlin. So they're driving around with this dead body looking for not Gatlin, anywhere but Gatlin, to find police or a hospital or something to take this kid to. And they're going through the suitcase, like you say, like detectives. And what do they find? Some clothes. Things that young Joseph took to get away from Isaac and Malachi and the rest of the kids in the town because there are other kids that don't believe in what Isaac has to say. Uh, Job and Sarah. Job and Sarah included. But he also brought with him a little effigy. It's weird that he brought that. Maybe it's one of those things where, listen, I don't believe in any of this crap, but just in case I'll bring my little corn Jesus with me because it's just like a it's like a little corn man on a cruciform. Uh, and uh, it's funny that he brought that to me. Um, <laughs> you mentioned the gas attendant. So this gas attendant is a gas attendant in a long line of old men who know something in not just Stephen King narratives, but certainly in Stephen King narratives. He's got a dog. Um no need to go to the does the dog die.com. It does. His job seems to be he gives the kids gasoline when they need it and also tells people to go the around the town. And this is apparently the third car that he's done in three months. Bert does not like this guy's insistence to not go to Gatlin. So much so. That when he gets back in his car, he was just like, I don't know if he's senile or or a sunstroke. And you're like, whoa, that is a level of aggression 
that is, again, fucking insane. And then, when this old man is getting murdered and and is dead and fucking bleeding because of the signage of the of Gatlin, I don't know. And you can tell me in a second, is this supernatural or is this the kids are doing? It doesn't make any sense to me. But um, when they go into a big loop and they go back to the gas station, what Bert says is like, he better not ever come to my emergency room. As if to say, this old man gave you, in your mind, bad directions. And so if he was dying, he wouldn't help him. That line struck me as obtuse. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it also helps us hate Bert even more. And if Bert dies, which he should, which he could in the book too, right? You know what I mean? Like, uh, there should be iterations of this film where different people make it and different people don't. (laughs) But yeah, Bert is a horrible, horrible person. And Vicky isn't too much better for putting up with all of this. And Mm -hmm. she would rather just have a nap or listen to music or stay alone or play with kids. Like, that's what she seems to want to do and is good at through this film. It's, like, really unfortunate. She's a horrible character and she just doesn't really do anything throughout the whole movie. Yeah. uh, Quite honestly, except get paraded around the streets and uh, tied up. She's basically the penny in this Inspector Gadget story. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Bert, yes, is a horrible line. When they're driving, though, in between the two times they visit the gas station, I do think it's supernatural. It is 100% he who walks behind the rose doing this. It's the same way that Joseph was running through the cornfield. You run straight through a cornfield. Corn in this corn as well. Most corn is planted in straight lines when people plant it. And you just run straight. and You hit a road. You will hit a road. Some sort of road. And he gets turned around in this cornfield knowing that he's like 10 feet from the road but he gets turned around it's much like in the tall grass another stephen king story that we've covered and a really wonderful story that shows this sort of displacement the supernatural displacement of a person within a space or space moving around the person one of the two and this is a case of space moving around the people and there's been other stories where people are driving through like the irish countryside and the road turns around on them and I I love that sort of idea as well and I think that that's exactly what's going on here and I almost think that it takes them back into time like maybe this is why an entire town worth of people can disappear and no one notices because they can't quite get to the town anymore that could be part of it you go to drive directly to Gatlin and the signs start pointing you different directions The, the road starts to turn into a dirt path through a cornfield it's not a road anymore at all maybe when people aren't intending or aren't wanted in gatlin the highway just passes it by and you can drive past all the signs that point to gatlin thinking you're going to gatlin and it just takes you to hemingford you might be right about that and that puts to bed my the the itching part of the back of my brain that likes to ruin things for me because I'm constantly in battle with, it's a movie, let it be a movie, let the story tell itself and enjoy it if you can. And then there's another part of me that says, so hang on a second, no one in Gatlin or Gatlin had any family outside of this small town that might wonder where people went. You, you murdered hundreds of people. 
and left the children. And then the other part of my brain says, well, now hang on a second here. So an entire town stopped paying taxes for three years, stopped probably using uh, electricity in a significant way. Things, uh, power stations, taxes, these are all things that are monitored by you know the, the local the local uh, authorities and governments and shit like that and no, no one questions this no one goes to the town no one's seeing that it's becoming dilapidated even though all the lawns are mowed like i i, I just find it so hard to believe but if it exists in some kind of in between time where you know people can't get to it or or don't know there's like some sort of supernatural thing hiding people from it that could work it could and that's the only way i think that you could get around that unless the other way is this particular little town is shown to be a lot bigger and i wish they would have showed it the way that it's written in the book which doesn't really lend itself to the idea that the state would have their eye on this town and wondering where their taxes are or wondering where their annual reports are as far as reporting as a municipality and all of these other you know municipal or provincial territorial state or federal government uh, concerns lie as far as a town goes an unorganized township however of under something like 200 people could fall off the map even in this day and age to a certain degree except for people that move away and have families now these towns that they chose looked a little bigger than what is described in the original story where they had filmed even could have lent itself to it a little better in that the three towns or so that they used to film this in had populations of under 200 or around 200 mm -hmm. at the time and are still around that today but they have banks and chain eateries and franchise clothing goods stores and sporting goods stores so like there are other things to report to there are head offices for some of these things banks in particular so like it it, it doesn't it doesn't gel it does not gel as it's described in the story it's a lot like the book harvest home where people don't really come in and out of that town and if isaac had had a hold on this particular town to any degree for years or he who walks behind the rose having a hold on this town the chance that no one ever moved away is very high so there's no one yeah there's no one to have been coming to call in the three years that this town ceased to exist this town not only is isolated from the world and that people don't seem to be able to go through it unless to fulfill something a little bit more prophetic but there is also no information going out televisions telephones books music players all of these things are forbidden from the children who uh could possibly view the outside world or really any form of entertainment that is not this bizarre religion and after you're done toiling in the cornfields i guess 
you're just sitting around listening to speeches uh, sermonizing by Isaac and I suppose on the hunt for outlanders if any show up the religion itself is hard to really put a finger on it seems like it might have some pagan aspects to it it also has a Logan's Run aspect to it that when you hit 19 you're not going to see 20 which is one place where the story and the remake from what I understand differ is that there are teenagers and there are babies in Gatlin under the auspices of Isaac and he who walks behind the rose in other iterations of this story but yeah in this film it's and also like Midsummer, but a lot younger than in your 70s when you give yourself over to the idea of death because you have fulfilled what is demanded to you by your, your new god. Mm-hmm. And speaking of like the what they do after hours, you know, they listen to Isaac give sermons or hunt for outlanders or make corn dollies and corn Jesus. <laughs> I love the folk art in this particular thing. There isn't enough of it. I mean, I I like the folk art, if you call it that, in Blair Witch, too. And there are many little Blair Witch stick sigils all over the place. There's quite a few corn dollies, corn crosses, corn art, pictures of Jesus that have been redone with corn glued to them, much like a macaroni art that a kid would do in grade school. I absolutely love that. It's creepy as hell, though. It's very creepy looking, these corn teeth Jesus and stuff. Um, Did you find that this is completely blasphemous or is it just sort of like a childish expression? Is it something that you think that they're ordered to do and it's a real depiction, an effigy, if you will, or an idol? Or is it just something they do the past the time at night? I think it's part of that because I think you can't if you take humans and you take away our creature comforts of how we've come to entertain ourselves with TVs and movies and music and literature and, and everything like that, there's still going to be this inherent need to create and have culture and around all of the things that we do, art and culture a lot of it that we have now starts with someone's religion, a religion we remember or a religion that we don't. Music, classic art, classic literature all had these aspects of it. I think this is an inherent human need. And I think that as long as the things that you're toiling away with are related to he who walks behind the rose, I think that it's okay. And if you were to wait 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of this constant society, you would see more art and perhaps, well, this music's okay because it's a song praising he who walks behind the rose or this play that we've put on. This is a story about our devotion to it. I don't, I don't think humans can help it. So I don't know if this is Isaac saying, yes, and we will create little toys. I think it's they're kids, but they're human and they need to do these things because we as humans need to do these things. 
That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, so they're not going to take them to the next town over and sell them at the craft show. And it's not really part of their study and their devotion. It's a part of their entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's the only real entertainment they seem to have left. Uh, decorating everything with... or it, Like, decorating or um, suffocating everything with corn stalks, too. Uh, I always I found that that visual has always persisted with me and I found that quite creepy and quite effective as well. Um, now the kids that do get away with murder that don't actually murder anyone, uh, little Sarah and Job, she seems to be given a lot of latitude because she's their clairvoyant. She's the one that saw the outlanders coming in her drawing. She's the one who saw the blue man, the blue man coming in her drawings and she's allowed to sort of sneak into their old house which none of the kids are allowed to go and sleep in or sneak in or play in their old houses but job and sarah because she's the psychic and he's her brother they kind of get away with doing whatever they want and they're the youngest it seems out of most of these kids Mm -hmm. i really enjoy these two little actors and i really enjoy their sort of being able to live outside the law, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But they also don't want to run the way that Joseph did. I think that their age is... And also Sarah's clairvoyance would give them a perspective about... Um, first of all, first and foremost, they are clearly terrified of Malachi, more so than they're scared of Isaac. Isaac is their authority figure, but Malachi is the one that would kill them in a heartbeat and has threatened to kill them in a heartbeat. And the only person that is keeping them from getting killed because they know that they helped Joseph. They know, and Joseph was killed too sweet. They didn't waste any fucking time for that. And the first real discourse between Malachi and Isaac that we see is the fact that Isaac spares Job and Sarah because Isaac says that it is he who walks behind the roses will and that she is a clairvoyant and they she has the power of sight. So they need her, not for what, who knows. So they really operate outside of the law, but it is the sword of Damocles in the form of Malachi. That thread could be cut at any moment and, you know... I think where the movie progresses, it beca- it's it's obvious that you know if Malachi was left to their own devices, Sarah and Job would be dead in a few more hours. Yeah, absolutely true. The little kids seem to know their way around the town too, where the when the kids go on the run chasing Bert around the town to kill him, Malachi is a bloodthirsty little bugger. Um, they little Job seems to know like all the little passageways, all the little alleys, all the sneaky little places, a little bunker, basically, that his father had shown him that isn't under their house, it's somewhere downtown, but like places where the older kids never go or don't know about. And that's really handy in that we get to see almost like the underground after hours version of Gowan. And I really do like those two kids for that. Aside from the kind of playful, quiet way that they take all of this, 
Sarah has clairvoyance, so I guess she feels pretty secure in that they're going to get out of this someday. And little Job is just like, meh, Isaac's a bully. He came here. And Malachi's crazy. We just ignore them mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of attitude. Very blasé, and I like it. I just kept saying to myself, kids are just very uh, resilient. Like, and, and, and humans are good at adapting to their surroundings because, I mean, Job saw his father killed in front of him. And three years later, he doesn't even really talk about it. Um, there is um, a sense of understanding what the world is now, and it's not really related to what the world was then. And I don't know how the kids account for that, but I do know that while trying to inform Bert about what is going on, Bert has this attitude of... Um, white savior is the wrong way but it's kind of like i'm the scientist and i'm going to like show you how hokey and silly your religion is all religions it seems to be a very uh subtle as a hand grenade as the the kids say well i don't know if kids say that anymore but subtle as a hand grenade approach to religion is stupid and silly and if you just think for five minutes um, and the, the level in which he's able to get through to these kids is actually really funny to me because especially his big scene in the church his like, you know, though he's holding the Bible and he's like, this is what, like the way that he throws it into this pile of uh, Bibles and all the kids sort of like gasp, like clutch their pearls. Like, look what he did to a Bible. I'm like, I'm sorry, you guys don't interpret. You guys don't read the Bible. This is not. He walks behind Rose is not in the Bible. What do you care when he just slammed a a Bible down? Um, And so it it really kind of comes with this. I'm going to point out your silly rituals. Like I'm the civilized first world white man. And I'm going to like show you how stupid your ancient cultures are. Um, Again, just like he's not wrong about this weird cult thing that's they got going on but at the same time he does it in such like a arrogant way but also in a way he never the character never um is talking in his mind to appear he is always talking to children children that have killed people and he never seems to appreciate that but children nonetheless no absolutely absolutely and like anyone in in a more with a more balanced take would just run straight and try and find authorities, Children's Aid Society, something like that. But no, he is having this sort of uh, white savior kind of moment. And as a doctor, explaining to them that by drinking one another's blood, they don't know what kind of diseases are spreading. <laughs> it's kind of laughable on one hand, but, you know, he, ha- he does have a, a bit of a point. And it is just grotesque what they're doing. This sort of like total blasphemous bastardization of the blood of Jesus because Amos has hit 19 years old he is going to be sacrificed to join he who walks behind the rose as part of the cornfield and it's a it's a noble endeavor sure thing there's not much else to do after 19 years old I suppose but he walks in on this ritual which is great and i really like the imagery of the church being taken over by corn jesus and on whatever he who walks behind the rose and all the corn that is going on i've only ever seen this much corn at a harvest themed wedding so it's 
very similar to that with a lot of like more refuse and kid level versions of uh, tomfoolery where they've toppled things and thrown things in piles and burnt things and been decorating with the corn. It's a very cool scene. If my dislike, much like your dislike of Bert, hadn't gone to a fever pitch at this point, it could have been the linchpin scene. More like the linchpin scene is really Malachi dragging Vicky through the streets, yelling for Bert to come out because mm-hmm. they have her. And it's it's a wonderful scene, wonderfully acted too. What should have been its counterpart of Bert breaking up a sacrifice, a ritual sacrifice in a church, just what sad trombone. That's where it ranks as far as excitement and pivotal moments in this plot. He doesn't even really care that they're going to commit a sacrifice. He's more concerned with the fact that they're just drinking blood and this is stupid. You're drinking blood and this is stupid. Like yeah. that's 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 really yeah. his point that he's making. Um, also the thing that you pointed out a little while ago about how Vicky is all too happy to not be by Bert's side. I'm going to go look. I'm going to City Hall. I'm going to go look around this strange empty town and Vicky's just like yeah okay see you later I'm just gonna hang out with this little girl in this empty house where we don't know who owns it or what's going on or why there's a child here or why there's corn jammed and everything see ya like I was like man how much do you hate your fucking partner (laughs) don't want to get away from them that bad and it's super it's super misplaced um it's super misplaced mother instinct, I suppose, too, because not every woman is like, I want to hang out with a little tiny girl in the abandoned house, make sure she's okay and play dollies. And I don't know, whatever the hell her point was, because she doesn't seem to really be questioning the kid too clearly the way that any adult would be questioning this kid, especially when she's just like, shrug, I don't know, Isaac killed all her parents, whatever. Uh, you, you have a lot more questions instead of just like, well... You like listening to records or something well, like you you would be asking a lot more questions than just wanting to literally chill out with this kid because that's all she really wants to seem to do. Bert's the one losing his shit. Like they asked the little girl three questions. He's just like, ah, we're talking in circles. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to the city hall for some real answers. I was like, you're not talking in circles, dipshit. You're talking in a straight line. You now know what happened you've gotten names of people that you should probably figure out you know isaac you know malachi you got all this information and just because she won't tell you won't directly take you to malachi or directly take you to isaac because she's scared of them you're just like ah we're talking in circles i'm bert i'm out of here like i (laughs) anyway fuck that guy um when things happen in this film they happen very quickly there is a lot of setup to what happened to the families and then vicky and bert arguing the gas station attendant all this kind of stuff builds up but by the time they're in the town vicky will get attacked almost immediately and it probably be super dis- disorienting when she's like "Ugh, i was just sort of like driving with my boyfriend to some you know for his thing about being a doctor and now I'm getting crucified in front of the blue man. Um, I wanted to ask you about the blue man, if you don't mind. And mm-hmm. my, my my question is, do you really think that they could, even though they're children, maybe the super young ones, it has been three years, 
But do you think it would suffice to say for Isaac to be like, ah, the blue man, we've vanquished him. And then every other person in the town who's a kid and not an imbecile would be like, that's a police officer. You don't have to call him the blue man. Like we have a name for what he is. Uh, he's wearing a police officer's uniform and little baby books. Here's a fireman. Here's a policeman. Here's a mailman. Like it's some of the first things that children learn to recognize. So like, why do you think he can get away with calling him the blue man? I never really thought about it past the influence of he who walks behind the roads must have been very deep to be sure, for years in this town mm -hmm. to the degree that maybe they didn't go to traditional school. Maybe their school teachers were younger and younger each year to the point that it was uh, substitute teachers that were 14 years old teaching the younger classes. <sighs> Could be. I, I, But it is startling. It works very well, and I like the scene with the police officer. And they talk about the blue man and you don't really get any story but you just assume that one day a cop came there to figure out what the hell was going on and the kids killed him strung him up and now he's a sacrifice to he who walks behind the rose and a really good deterrent i guess if any other cops show up they're like whoa they sacrificed cops here let's get out of here i don't know whatever it's supposed to actually do but that they all refer to him as the blue man so that you can just call it us and them right it's kind of weird it's very folksy. It's, it, it is that folk horror, like the blue man from from another town. Uh, I, I always got the sense that he was like last man standing. Like, like there's, there's, there's such a zero day thing you could do with this story that I would, if they ever wanted to do like, here's the prequel to Children of the Corn, which is all zero day of the town of Gatlin getting eradicated down to the last adult because you would have to okay so there's that initial blitz but there had to have been adults that fought back that tried to escape that tried to do stuff and we find out that the blue man does did try to do something that uh figured out at the very least that the problem might be the corn itself but but i had one question before we get into like the finale of this film in your reading of the story and seeing the other children of the corn films and all the stuff that you know about Stephen King, have they ever said where Isaac came from? They always just refer to him as he came from out of town, but do they ever say where he comes from? I don't believe so. I need to reread the short story for mm -hmm. sure. I've read snippets of it and I've read it when I originally read it a long time ago. I don't think they say it's just when Isaac came. Mm -hmm. just that is like the extent of the origin of Isaac. Just some kid from out of town. Um, I can tell you who just starts treating him like some kid from out of town is Malachi. Because during his preachings and given the different ideology that these two young boys have, we finally have this breaking point in which people may listen to Isaac but they're afraid of Malachi and Malachi is tired of listening to speeches. He's tired of sermons. He's tired of prophecies. He's tired of rituals. He wants blood. 
He wants the harsh interpretation of this religion. And he is no longer interested in Vicky being crucified because of some vision that some seer did. He's like, fuck this, string up Isaac. And Isaac demands the orders the death of Malachi, but it is too late. And this is where you have Isaac strung up in front of the blue man himself. And screaming, screaming his little Isaac head off. And I like, I like this scene. Uh, I like the casting so very much here. Uh, This it's, this is where it deviates 100% from the story up until now. The story and the book have been pretty similar. There's differences in the relationship between the husband and wife or fiance, boyfriend, girlfriend that we meet here in this film as there is, they are husband and wife in the book. And I think the remake is a little closer in that regard. Um, But a lot of stuff is, you know, they hit someone on the road. They encounter a gas attendant. They enter Gatlin. It's abandoned. All the parents have been killed children church corn jesus whatever all that stuff's been very similar he who walks behind the roads all very very similar the names of characters and their roles isaac and malachi's roles within the cult because let's call it what it is it's cult and then it deviates 100 percent with this whole like sacrificing isaac thing terrifying poor guy that is this this scene should be the most traumatizing as a kid to watch the first scene is what stuck with me for some reason i i was just like yeah i guess this is what happens this is what they do they string one another up all the time sacrifice one another to he who walks behind the rose i mean it would have happened to amos now it's happening to isaac whatever mm-hmm. it didn't seem to really strike me the way that it strikes me as an adult really love this scene really love the freaking out of isaac the, the various speeches that Isaac has throughout the film are done with such conviction and passion that when he gets to this, you even find the second his authority is questioned, he's taken aback. He's fearful, but then he falls back onto his... starts screeching like the zealot that he is. He's always been able to use his voice to get his way to turn people's minds and you know and so he tries to put the fear of their demonic god into malachi's heart and it's to no avail because everyone else has kind of decided that whether or not they liked isaac or not they're just so scared of malachi and and uh probably believed in his harsher interpretation which is why, like, what eventually happens is when you have um, Bert bursting onto the scene, burting onto the scene, uh, thank you, they, um, it's wild to me that he's able to get through to them in any way, shape, or form, in which he, he's like, and here's all my logic to tell you about how you're like, come, when does that ever work? You want to tell someone who fucking believes in a magical corn god that their religion is stupid? It's going to be like in the Wicker Man remake when, like, uh, or even just the first Wicker Man, fuck the remake, because fuck Nick Cage, but like, um, 
it's like when you try to have somebody, this isn't going to save your crops. This isn't going to do anything. What are you doing? You can't sacrifice me. And they don't listen and they burn you alive because like, like, oh, we've just been indoctrinated into this religion for three years. That was so potent that we fucking killed our family. No one ever like, and then Bert shows up and is like, Hey guys, don't do that. That's silly. And they all look at each other like, wait, is it silly that we're doing this? What? No one ever told us that this was silly. Like, <laughs> it's so unbelievable to me. Um, maybe it also has something to do with the fact that Bert did beat up Malachi. Like, he beat him in a fight. It's not that impressive. Because, like I said, <laughs> Malachi is just a teenager. Um, but uh, maybe that's Not why. in the minds of those little kids, though. No, that's true. Now, I think that part of it is that he has beat Malachi. And looking at it in, like, a tribal pack dog mentality that he is now the person that they need to follow because he's beat out the top dog so to speak he also i guess would be about the same age size probably saying the same things that the blue man would have said when he was there because the instructions for how to defeat this meaning he who walks behind the rose and the cult and save whoever save yourself at the very least were written down by the police officer. The police officer was kind of the last man standing, but I really think he must have visited at a later date when this cult and corn Jesus stuff was in full swing and the gasohol production was in full swing because they'd been making ethanol. I guess this town made ethanol beforehand because I can't see the kids having figured out how to make ethanol out of corn. Yeah. All by themselves. Especially so they must just be running this. Job knows how to use the machines. Like, he knows more than Bert how to operate all of this stuff. Um, so, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> sorry, I just thought of, I just thought of Bert making a Molotov cocktail, and, like, I need a thick rag, and then Vicky ripping Job's stupid little kid vest in half, and then Job has the line, that's not a rag. <laughs> At no point, Vicky's like, I'm just going to rip my big, long, stupid uh, blouse that I'm wearing. No, like, come here, kid. I'm going to rip your vest. <laughs> this fucking... <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not funny. It is funny, but I don't mean to, like, just completely derail everything. Let me ask you this, Liz. We skipped over it a little bit. There is an, in, uh, uh, an impending doom, if you will. This prophecy such that it is is that Vicky and Bert were supposed to come to this fucking town and it was supposed to spark some kind of ritual that Isaac had said we were going to essentially crucify Vicky and offer her to he who walks behind the rose Isaac himself is crucified instead and then this light show, you know, listeners, if you want to know what it looks like, it kind of reminds me of in the original Star Trek series from the 60s, like when like there was a super intelligent blob in space that talked to Kirk and all of them like, I am the supreme intelligence. Like it kind of reminds me of that. Um, and it sort of envelops Isaac 
it's very poorly done. Like even for the time, it's startling how bad the graphics are. But what do you think? Do you agree or do you think it totally fine, doesn't take you out of it? Oh, it absolutely takes me out of it. I do agree 100% that it's horrible. It's, it's childish. It's almost like they got one of the kids to do this with a piece of acetate over the camera lens. It's, it's pretty bad. Like the, the I, there's graphic, there's CG rudimentary as it existed at the time CG in the movie, The Entity that almost takes me out of it, but they do as good of a job as they could have. This is an example of them not doing as good of a job as they could have. I don't know who or why they decided to do this. There could have been other in-camera effects. They could have tried to do this. They try some sort of animation effect that does not work. And it didn't work back then. It probably doesn't work on that VHS you own. It's just bad. It is just the worst effect. It, it reminds me, or I kept thinking while I was watching it, you know what they could have done that would have been a hundred times more effective? If they just took the evil dead route and just did a lot of camera work, POV, perhaps a sound effect. If you don't have the technical know-how or the money, because this seems like a time and money problem to me. Um, if you don't yeah, have the yeah. time and money to do this, just use the subjective camera angles, put some sound effects over it, like maybe crawl up Isaac's body from when he's on the stocks and just like, Ah, and like keep the camera in his face and have him scream and then you can do your exploding thing to in, if you to interpret what this demon does or what it is they kind of do a bit of an evil dead thing with the corn stalks themselves it reminds me a lot of that tree scene the famous tree scene in evil dead so i was wondering why they didn't just because you're like, they're like, well, we need the special effects because it's this grand finale and conclusion, but it looks like dog shit. So just leave it out and film it in a cheaper way. Well, they don't skimp on the cheap. You know, when he returns, <laughs> the, the effects applied to him at that point are fairly cheap as well. But yeah, I really think that it loses a lot and it probably is across the board. People who have watched this will say that I don't know that there would be someone in this planet that would say oh my god the scene where Isaac gets taken up by he who walks behind the rose is like chef's kiss perfection as far as the graphic <laughs> representation of that and the technology at the time no 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 it's it's a, it's a, it's garbage it's a garbage effect and yeah they could have used some sort of artistic angle they could have used some light effects in-camera effects, physical effects, all sorts of stuff would have worked here. All sorts of stuff with a little creativity. But this movie is short on creativity. The height of creativity, aside from Stephen King's writing, is found in the drawings of the little girl that we see throughout the movie. <laughs> and Corn Jesus. When uh, they have the idea to finish what the blue man started, to take the this ethanol and to put it through the, um, what is it, an irrigation system or sprinkler system? Yeah, irrigation system. It's a large scale irrigation system because it had been a farming community. So they have all of these rows in between the rows of piping for water to sprinkle. It's like a sprinkler system, but it's, it's way bigger than that. Um, I live for the SAS 
that Job gives Bert this entire fucking sequence because Bert is like, I'm a man of action now. I have a fucking plan. I'm going to do this and do that. Except he doesn't know how to do any of it. And he's got a lot of slippery hands. They, they can't find the right attachments for things. And he even tells Job, like, get, get out of here. I'm going to, like, handle this. And then two seconds later, Job is, like, telling him how you're supposed to not only operate this irrigation system and then have Job, like, open up the, the shit, but also, like, the line of because uh, Bert's going to throw a Molotov cocktail while this big red cloud is coming towards them, which we assume is the demon itself. And and he fucks up throwing the Molotov cocktail and it doesn't break, which is great because, you know, you throw a Molotov cocktail on soil, bottle's probably not going to break. And then he has the line, throw it right this time. I'm like, oh man, that's so good. It made me laugh out loud when that happened and of course he does and it seems that burning this shit is all you really need to do now we don't ever see the fate of isaac we know that isaac comes back possessed or empowered by he who walks empowered you mean (laughs) empowered with baby powder he's just covered it's like they put vaseline all over him and dumped him in in baby powder so he looks all possessed and stuff but he just he basically looks like they greased him up and dipped him in baby powder so he's empowered and he comes back to lay down the law yeah he essentially tells malachi he wants you now and breaks malachi's neck um but we never see him again in this story at least in this film um does he come back for sequels? I can't even remember. I don't really remember either. I believe he, I believe he is. Huh. In the next one. I have to rewatch it. And I've wanted to have the set of the first three films for quite some time. And there is a set available in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I only wish that Malachi returned. You know, Courtney Gaines in this particular role. There's an interview which I want to listen to on the Geek House podcast or Page to Screen podcast where they talk to him about what it was like filming and they all do like a lot of appearances. So if you're interested in seeing John Franklin, Courtney Gaines, whoever else from this film, uh, maybe not so much Linda Hamilton because she's so Linda Hamilton, but they do, they have an appearance coming up in Pennsylvania in September and they do like horror hound weekends and all sorts of appearances and stuff. I really ought to listen to them talk about this particular role the role of Isaac as well like having an actor that had studied theater and had been in plays and was a university graduate you can see why Isaac has such presence Mm -hmm. and you know his stature his voice his looks aside which would have been an automatic yes in casting I think he also had the chops Mm -hmm. so I hope he comes back I just don't remember I remember the darker kind of like fourth film in kind of stuff where of course it's totally different kids but Mm -hmm. in those in the book it's very different in the short story it's a very very different outcome i highly recommend reading that if you're thirsty for a different outcome and different people surviving in different ways this is a film that was created in the early 80s and as such it adheres to 
the one last scare phenomena that many films were in this. I find this a completely goofy and ineffective scene um, because it's with a character who I don't care about, who they could have easily had Isaac back and like maybe resolve that a little bit or whatever. But you have like this Bert who's being all goofy. Like, I guess they're going to adopt these kids or at least, oh, you can stay with us for a month or oh, maybe a week. Maybe this, maybe that. And then they get into the car, even though it's completely jammed with corn and obviously looks like it won't run. And then you have the the young girl, one of the only uh, girls that have, um, aside from Sarah, who have speaking lines that was, um, that was going to sacrifice Amos, I suppose. She was also uh, preaching a lot in their little church that they had. And so she's obviously another older kid, another pillar of this corn community. And even after the wind was taken out of all the kids' sails to the point in which they all sort of ran into the woods, she still has murder on her mind and then just gets instantaneously knocked out. And it's treated more like a, a sitcom beat. Like, she's knocked out cold. What are we going to do? Like, nothing. She tried to kill you. Just leave. We'll send her a get well card from Seattle. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it could have been so much better served by ending the movie with them approaching the car and being like, well, I guess we're walking, you know, and that's the end of that. Mm -hmm. And it would have actually fit better with the stand mm -hmm. because if I want to take it to the Stephen King multiverse again, they all had to walk because there was no cars or gas or nothing and they didn't want to draw attention to one another anyway. So it would have been like, not that it's the beginning of the stand at all, but it would have been like, oh, a little bit of deja vu. <laughs> but no, they have to ruin it with this weird ass ending. Hmm. Something to sit on. What have we got next for him? Coming up next, we're going to be within the corn again as part of Stephen King of Palooza, which we do almost every year here at deadairsplatterpictures.net. We're going to do 1922, which is a West pick and Stephen King. Stephen King and a West pick, 1922. One century later uh, in 2022. We'll be delivering that to you. It's very, it'll be really fun to revisit that film. I haven't gone back to it since it premiered on Netflix. Me neither. And I'm looking forward to it because I did enjoy it quite a lot. And we were talking about it beforehand. We're trying to decide, like, does this fit in? Is it too sleepy? And it's so well acted and so picturesque and so, so very dark. I, I really like this film quite a lot that I, I believe it fits much like Sling Blade, to explain the premise of Sling Blade and the story of Sling Blade is very sleepy, but it is riveting. And 1922 is riveting. It's one of the few Netflix originals that I really like. And I think that is, you know, it should have gone wide in theaters if it didn't. I don't think it did. I think it was only a Stephen King and Netflix thing. Uh, yes, it, you're, it you're right. Yeah, it was. It's fantastic. So we will be staying in Nebraska as well for this particular story. And this, oddly enough, quite a random pick on our part, takes place in Hemingford, where Bert was trying to get to instead of Gatlin, where they were told to go to by the dead gas attendant 
in Children of the Corn. So it's the exact same area many, many years before. So in 1922, a farmer who lives in Hemingford, Nebraska, uh, is not very happy about his wife's plans to sell the farm and move to Omaha with their son. So it takes place next door to Gatlin. I really, really, this is delicious. And the corn look of the fields everywhere is something we'll spend a lot more time with in 1922. I can tell you this much. I sure wish that uh, Bert did make it to that particular town because uh, he could have possibly fallen into a well from whence there is no return. This will be fantastic. I welcome the well. What is it about uh, some of our favorite movies have to do with little girls in a well? Or women in a well. I think that I, I think that uh, wells are just so creepy because it, inter- it it incorporates fear of heights, fear of water, fear of the dark, and fear of disease. It encapsulates all of these things. Mm-hmm. And it is just a little bit closer to hell. <laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Knight, and I'm Typical Lydia, and you've been listening to dead air.